welcome to the third season of The First Incision, a CMF podcast where we explore issues at the interface of faith and medicine. I'm your host, Dr. John Greenall. At this unprecedented time in history with COVID-19 spreading like wildfire, how do Christians in healthcare respond? Where does our strength come from? Well, this isn't the first time we've been in this situation. And at the 2019 CMF Student Conference, Professor John Wyatt addresses the issue of costly love, how Christians have responded in the middle of global crises before, and how an outbreak of the plague birthed the first nurses. Let's hear him speak on this key issue for us in this short excerpt from his talk. These are profound and valuable lessons for us all. So God chose you and called you to be a Christian physician or a nurse. And, you know, he could have called you to be a physician or a nurse in the early church, like Luke, the beloved physician, trained in Hippocratic medicine, using your skills to support the disciples. Or he could have called you to be a Christian nurse in the Middle Ages, at the time of the great monastic hospitals, places like St. Thomas's and St. Bartholomew's in London, St. Mary's. They provided free medical and nursing care for travellers and pilgrims. That's why they were positioned on the, Lon- on the bridges going into the city of London. Or he could have called you to be a godly physician at the time of the great missionary movement in the 19th and early 20th century, when the average life expectancy of medical missionaries going to Africa was six months. And they nearly all died from tropical diseases, from malaria and other things. And yet, they kept going, shipload after shipload. And you know, they knew what they were going for. And apparently, those ships, they took all their coffins with them. Now, God might have called you to be one of those. Or you might have been called to be a Christian physician in Stalin's Russia, threatened with death unless you complied with the demands of the state police. But instead, God is calling you to be a Christian healthcare professional now. The part that he's written in for you is now. At the beginning of the 21st century, at this very particular time, a very unusual and confusing time, a time when vast demographic changes are taking place, technological, healthcare, ethical. We know all about some of this. A time of unique opportunity and unique danger. And you know, you can't request a free transfer to another time in world history. This is where you and I are being called. So really the only choice you have is you can choose to become the person that God created you to be. You can choose to walk the walk, to do the good works, which God has already prepared for you. Or you can say to God, sorry, but I'm not prepared to go your way. You can turn your back, you can refuse, you can shut your eyes, you can harden your heart. So I want to turn now to this passage in John, John chapter 13, which we've had read for us. If you've got a Bible, it would be helpful if you could look at it on a smartphone or wherever you've got it. So it's just before the Passover feast, and John spells out that there are four things that Jesus knows utterly and unshakably in the core of his being. So first, he knows that the time has come. Second, he knows that the Father has given all things into his hand. Third, he knows that he's come from God. 
and fourth, that he's, go being, that he's going back to God. And this is a sacred moment. Jesus is spending his last hours with his chosen few. And yet the evil one is in the room too. John spells it out. He says in verse 2, The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Judas is there in the room. And what John emphasizes is that Jesus knows these things. They encompass where he's come from, his supreme position in the cosmos, the Lord of Lords, the significance of this hour, they, the idea that this is the crux point, the whole point of history is coming, the cross, the Passover, all that it means, and his ultimate destiny at the Father's right hand. This is what Jesus knows. And it gives him total security in who he is. And with such power and status, we might expect him to defeat the devil who is there in the room with him with an overwhelming burst of spiritual power. He might have blown Judas away in a moment with a blast of divine wrath. And instead, he gets up from the table he puts a towel around his waist and he gets on his knees. Washing feet in first century Palestine was the most menial, lowly and despised occupation. And it was reserved for the lowest of the low. The streets of a crowded city like Jerusalem were dirty and disgusting. There was filth, disease, urine, excrement, and they didn't wear boots, and they didn't wear socks. There was filth, disease. It, was, it doesn't take much imagination to see why washing feet was a filthy and demeaning task. And it was particularly unacceptable to religious Jews because it made them impure. And once they were impure, they couldn't be involved in any kind of religious ceremonies. And some high-minded Jews insisted that even Jewish slaves should never wash feet. This job should be reserved only for the Gentile slaves, or else for women and children who didn't count. And of course we can see that to be forced by power to take on the role of a foot washer, to be compelled by force to wash the stinking feet of others, would be profoundly abusive and damaging and humiliating. Apparently there was a story at the time that when Rabbi Ishmael returned from home, from, returned home from synagogue one day, his mother wished to wash his feet and the rabbi refused on the ground that the task was too demeaning. And apparently there's no record in the entire Greek, Jewish or Roman literature of a socially superior person washing the feet of somebody who was inferior. It just wasn't done. So the shock of the disciples at what Jesus is doing is understandable. How can their Lord and Master do such a thing? Has he lost his mind? Or does this mean that perhaps Jesus is not who we thought he was? And what John makes the point, that's why John juxtaposes what Jesus utterly knows, these four things, 
with the fact that he is then able to wash the feet. Do you see the point? It's precisely because he was secure in himself and in his status that he can lower himself to this demeaning task. It's an example of the profound doctrine of what theologians call kenosis. It's a Greek word and it just means emptying or lowering or humbling. And in Philippians 2, there's this passage where it says, Christ, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And that's the word, keno, from which kenosis comes from, keneo. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, the doctrine of kenosis doesn't mean that Jesus exchanges being God to being a servant. What it means is that Jesus chooses to lower himself so that the true nature of his godhood is revealed. It's revealed in human frailty and in human sacrifice. So his status, all those things that he knew about himself, is not lost through the act of foot washing. It's powerfully revealed and unveiled. And so Jesus does this astonishing thing. And he washes the feet. And I think it's an interesting thought experiment. Imagine you yourself. Imagine you're in some terrible state. You've been incontinent. You're lying in your own feces, in urine and vomit. And you're being gently and tenderly washed and cleansed by the Lord Jesus himself. Just imagine what that would feel like. That is the true nature of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And I think it's amazingly significant that Jesus washes the feet of Judas Iscariot too. Have you ever thought of that? The one indwelt by the evil one, he doesn't just confine himself to nice people, to grateful people, to the chosen ones. Symbolically, he washes the feet of the unlovely, the hostile, the wicked, the abusive, the malevolent, the one dedicated to destroy himself. In fact, you could say he washes the feet of the evil one himself. Isn't that amazing? How can he do this? Well, it comes from his total unshakable security. He knows who he is. He knows what God has given him. And then in verse 12, he says this, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. So you're right to call me teacher. You're right to say that I'm the one who can explain. And you're right to call me Lord, kurios. I'm the one of total power. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. But just as Christ's loving and voluntary service, his willingness to take the lowest and the dirtiest job is rooted in his security, in the same way, we cannot take the lowest role unless we too 
know who we are in the very depth of our being. Do you see that? Do you see that connection? To be forced just by power, by someone else's power, to take on the role of the lowest of the low, to be a house slave, is incredibly damaging and abusive and destructive. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. There are so many people across the world and they are just forced to serve. They're forced as a slave, you know, uh, forced slavery is common, I'm afraid, that there are apparently tens if not hundreds of thousands of slaves in the UK trapped and being abused and humiliated uh, because of, by powerful people. But to voluntarily choose the lowest role, motivated by love and knowing who we really are as dearly loved daughters and sons of the king, that's totally different. That is the profound dignity of Christ-like service. So Christ's action is motivated by free agape love. It's not coerced, it's not manipulated, it's not even driven by a sense of duty of ought. No, it's totally free and uncoerced. And although it's not in this passage, we know from elsewhere in the, in the New Testament that actually what drove Jesus to get down on his knees and start cleaning those filthy feet? Do you know what it was? It was joy. In Hebrews, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Remember we talked about shame yesterday and how central shame is to what Jesus did in the cross? Well, there it is. He despised the shame. He took our shame. And do you know why he did it? Why he went to the cross? Not because he was gritting his teeth, because he must do this, he should do this. No, he did it for the joy for the joy that was set before him, he chose to sacrifice himself. And so, from the outside, the actions of Christ and the actions of an abused house slave may look the same. They're wearing the same clothes, they're groveling on the floor, they're covered with filth. But the house slave is driven by external power and she is conscious of her status. She's the lowest of the low. She's the bottom of the pile. She's human trash. And I'm afraid she's being damaged and demeaned and humiliated. But the Christian servant is driven by agape love, by compassion, by joy. And they're conscious of her or his supreme status as a loved and honored princess or prince and is ennobled, upbuilt, and fulfilled by the action, thrilled to be living out the life and love and presence of Jesus. Isn't that an amazing contrast? And you know, Jesus' example, and what John wrote here in the Gospel, was a fuse which ignited explosions in the world of Christian service and healthcare. And thousands and thousands of Christian people took on the role of being sacrificial carers. Why? Because they'd seen Jesus do it. And Jesus said, this is the way to do it. And there are amazing stories which make me feel very humbled from those early centuries. One of the realities was plague. These terrible plagues came sweeping in, to, in the ancient world. And there's still some discussion about precisely what organisms they were, but the effects were devastating. In these, in these 
crowded cities, hygiene was hopeless, and therefore, you know, all the things you learn about fecal oral spread and all that kind of stuff, there, there were these infections just went devastating. In some places, the mortality was up to 50% of, a, of an entire town. And there are first-person account descriptions of what was going on. And it's pretty horrific. So here's one. Afterwards, there broke out a dreadful plague, an excessive destruction of a hateful disease, invaded every house in succession of the trembling populace, carrying off day by day with abrupt attack numberless people, everyone from his own house. All were shuddering, fleeing, shunning the contagion, impiously exposing their own friends, as if with the exclusion of the person who was sure to die of the plague, one could exclude death itself also. Here's another description. Oh, no, sorry, it isn't there, but I'll, I'll read it. At the first onset of the disease, the pagans pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Horrific. I mean, can you imagine that? The streets with people with people, corpses and people dying and vomit and blood and feces. And what did the Hippocratic physicians do? Do you know what the Hippocratic physicians do when plague strikes? The first thing you do is you head for the hills. You get out of there as fast as, you're, as you possibly can. In fact, the Hippocratic physicians said that you should never treat somebody who was clearly dying because it was very bad for your reputation as a physician. And people have said about the ancient textbooks that most of their descriptions of diseases are incredibly precise and detailed and obviously first-person observations of various conditions. But when it comes to plague, the descriptions in the ancient textbooks are incredibly vague and sort of impressionistic. And that's basically because no other physicians stayed around. So here is this disaster taking place. But in this city, there is a small group of what the pagan people called the atheists, because they didn't have any idols. Or the Nazarenes. They were followers of a weird guy, some Jesus of Nazareth. How are they going to respond when the plague hits the town? And there are first-person accounts. This is a bishop writing in the third century. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. And so the first person accounts is the Christians went out into the streets and they picked up these pagan people and brought them into their own homes. And they nursed them. They washed their wounds. They cleansed them. They fed them. And as the bishop said, many of them died in the process. But this, so the Christians knew that this is what they were called to do. And did you notice that thing? They were serenely happy, cheerfully accepting their pains. That's this bizarre, paradoxical thing about joy. The joy of service. And the extraordinary thing is the ancient world had never seen anything like this before. 
This was utterly and totally different from anything that had been seen before. And some church historians have argued that it was the actions of Christians in times of plague that was an important factor in the explosive growth of the church. Because this happened time and time again, and people were drawn by the astonishing paradoxical power of sacrificial love. And the church exploded. People said, I want to be part of that. I've never seen anything like this. Some of them would be people who were actually nursed by Christians and who survived. Because just getting basic nursing care, of course, improved survival dramatically. And those shocking times of plague and death were the origin of a profession. And do you know what that profession was? It was the nursing profession. Nurses didn't exist as a recognisable profession until the Christians invented it. And the concept that someone could take on the humiliating role of washing feet and wiping bottoms and dressing wounds and yet have a deep sense of respect and dignity and status and honour, that's an entirely Christian invention. It's a Christian paradox and it comes from the example of Christ. As Jesus said, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And it led to the creation of something called a hospital. The first hospitals were created by the Christian church, and it was created for plague victims. And they called it a hospital because it was named after hospes, which means a guest. A hospital is a place where you practice Christian hospitality to strangers and in particular to pagans who don't know anything about Christ. And that's why to be a Christian nurse, and I know there's a whole group of nurses here, to be a Christian nurse is a particular badge of honour. And when I hear those accounts, I don't know about you, but I feel quite humble. I think it's amazing to be called by the same name, to be called a Christian healthcare professional when the people like that have gone before us. And I know that in our healthcare systems, it's usually the doctors who are top dog. But the truth is that the roots of medicine are in the pagan ideas of the shaman and the herbalist and the mystical worker of the healing arts. And the thing about shamans and is they can always turn their hand to killing as well, if you want to. That's why medicine is always slightly dodgy. It's all about power and control and mastery. And doctors are always tempted to abuse their power, including Christian doctors. Let it be a warning to you. Yes, medicine can be redeemed and used for Christ, but you need to watch it. But nursing is an entirely Christian invention. And if you're a Christian nurse, you're in a particular position of honour and respect. So when I read those third century accounts, I feel humbled and privileged to be called this by the same name. But of course, there have been many Christian healthcare professionals who've sacrificed their lives for their patients in our time. And only a few years ago, the terrible outbreak of Ebola, there were a whole group of Christians, Christian doctors, Christian nurses, who cheerfully sacrificed their lives. They knew what the risks were. They knew that the um, barrier techniques were, were useless. They knew they were being exposed to infected fluids and they still went. Why? Because they were Christians. So 
being a Christian can lead to a real cost. And you know, that maybe there are some people in this room who will be called at some future time of emergency. Maybe a future pandemic, maybe a war zone, maybe a totalitarian regime. Maybe you're going to be called to risk your lives out of loyalty to Christ. Because that's what it means. And Jesus went before us to show us the cost, the cost of caring. But remember, it's all about joy. It's not about gritted teeth. It's not about, well, I suppose I must. It's actually about joy. Well, I thought that was amazing. It's not about gritted teeth. It's all about joy. So let's go into this uncertain and potentially costly time, ready to serve Christ for the joy that he sets before us. We're praying for you and we invite you to join healthcare professionals and others every day at 7pm in the evening across the UK to pray for our healthcare system, for our nation and the globe. And join us in a couple of weeks time for another episode of The First Incision.